we will not start the podcast or go on stage without the crowd cheering. Ooh, ah, there we are. Oh, Welcome Thank you. Thank to the Carl Landry Record Club, a music podcast from the rights to Ricky Sanchez. I am Spike, along with a guy who will not come on stage for his encore unless everyone is chanting his name and standing and cheering. Oh, man, that, that is moving. Thank you. Thank you. Great to be here. Great to be here. You know, that is part of the concert culture is the encore. Mo- Molly is our producer. Molly, do people, you go to like indie shows and stuff, are, are encores where the crowd has to cheer to get them to come back on to do their most popular song still a thing? Yes. Like for, oh, they are. It's okay. not a guarantee if it's going to be their most popular song anymore. It's just kind of whatever they want, I feel like. Oh, right. There is that. There is. Yet yeah, that has evolved, I think, with regular bands, too, that they don't necessarily do the big one that everyone's waiting for. They might do that in the first third of the uh, of the set. So, so that I everybody like, leaves. <laughs> right. I, the real I, ones. I, I love the encore. I, I'm a, a big fan of the the uh, the predetermined encore, like where the crowd goes the crowd, like the lights go down, but there's still a light up on the stage and all of the instruments are still up there. Mutlu, as as an actual artist, how do you feel about the on-purpose encore, the encore that everybody knows is happening? Well, it's a thing where everybody knows it's going to happen. Right. Uh, artist knows, the crowd knows. It's kind of a funny ritual because you know the end of the set is nine times out of ten not the end of the show right, we all yeah. pretend like it is yeah and then everybody gets fired up yes and uh and then we go oh thank you thank you come back out i mean but but i mean it's wonderful but it's all kind of uh preordained yeah you know? i like, like that I, the only thing i don't <laughs> like is when because you can only do this with rock bands who have been around for a long while is when that space in between the end of the set and the encore is a little too long i feel like you have to you have to be quick now or people will just leave i think yeah that's a thing well it depends if it's an over-the-top response those the crowd will keep it going right right yes well you got to be careful like you said yeah. depending on the night yeah they may want the encore but if you wait too long then it's kind of awkward if you wait too long. Yeah, and the, and the, the claps kind of half full. Yeah, yeah, where it starts to wind <laughs> down. Like you don't want to be running yeah. out when the claps are winding down. Yes. So yeah, you yeah. just you know you can't. It's a it's a there's a fine balance there that you have to find. We are a music appreciation podcast. Going to talk about two albums on this pod, like we always do. One of the albums we always do is always a listener suggestion. So we would ask you that you make your suggestion in the Apple Podcast reviews if you use Apple. If you've uh, if you don't use Apple, you can go to carlandryrecordclub.com. But would uh, appreciate your five star rating. All of the reviews for this podcast are so nice. The, the, my other podcast, there's a, a little bit of there's like one out of three reviews is telling me how how much I fucking suck and how the podcast would be better if it was just the other guy. The ones oh for this God. one are always very kind. But that's yeah. like the sport, sports culture, isn't it? Yes. There's, yeah, yeah. I for mean, sure. you, that just comes with the territory. That's why sports Twitter really uh, just... Yeah, it's an angry place. Just unnerves yeah. me after a while. It's like, come on, this is supposed to be fun. It's not supposed to be, you know, the territorial nature of it. I get it. It's part of the fun, but then it always goes too far, you know? People who say the podcast would be better if it was just Mike, I always say, and Mike says this too, 
there would be no podcast. Like Mike, there, it wouldn't exist because he, like, everything that happens happens because I set it up to happen. So while you would love the idea of a Mike solo podcast, I don't even doubt that you would enjoy that. It just, the Ricky wouldn't exist if it wasn't for me. So I'm a necessary evil. In any case, the two albums today are, um, I get to pick an album, Moot um, did last week. Mine is Metallica's and Justice for All, which came out in 1988. And the listener album comes from Apple podcast user Kelt. And it is Fugazi's In on the Kill Taker, which came out in 93. The review says the following. Hey, guys, I'm newer to the pod, but I have been plowing through the back catalog I really enjoy the format and enjoy the takes, even for bands I don't even care for. I grew up in Philly, but was molded as a kid slash musician by the general DC punk slash discord records scene in the 80s and 90s. Hard for me to pick one, but I feel like In on the Kill Taker by Fugazi is the album I would have to choose. Either way, thanks. It's great seeing an episode episode fall in ye old pod feed weekly. Keep up the great work. So there we go. Thank you. Yeah, it's a great great review. Um... Before we get going, you there were two things I wanted to discuss. Your opening for Hall and & Oates, and if you saw any of the Taylor Hawkins tribute stuff that happened. First of all, how did the opening for Hall & Oates go? Awesome. It was, it was just so much fun. I, doing those big amphitheater shows, especially when it's like a perfect night, it just feels great. You know, I've done a lot of shows with them in the past. I think I mentioned this on the last pod, but it's been a few years. The last time I had been out with them, I think, was right before the pandemic. Mm. So uh, it was just a great crowd. I felt a lot of love. There's always an element when you open the amphitheaters, when you're the support act, where because there's thousands of people filtering in, you just, you just accept that there's some element of people still settling in. You kind of yeah. get the early comers. It'll and be noisy. It'll be a, a little, little bit. Of, it's different yeah, than a, a theater. Yeah. 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 It's different than a theater or performing arts center where people are normally fully in there and just attentive. Mm-hmm. But there's a different energy that if you tap into it with an amphitheater show, that's equally enjoyable. You know, you just you see some on the lawn, people filtering out stuff, but you know there's thousands of people there that are sitting and listening and ready. And I just felt so much love from this audience. I've worked with Hall Notes a lot in the past, so I think there were probably people who'd seen me with them before. And it's just one of those nights, picture perfect weather. It's a great venue, uh, CMAC Performing Arts Center. It's out in. Uh, have you guys ever been out to the Finger Lakes? I have that, that region. A, oh man, yeah, I've never been there Syracuse before. Syracuse grad, the Finger right. Lakes were not far from there, right? And and that area kind of pulls from Syracuse, Rochester, Buffalo, and Canada. Mm-hmm. People will make yep. the trip down from Canada, so it's just a beautiful area, picture perfect night, great venue, very similar to the Man Music Center, and uh, just a lot of fun. It was great to see those guys, and they always put on an excellent show. And as much as I've opened for them, I'm just always blown away by how many hits they have. I, yeah, they just, got a lot of hits. They play a full show of hits, and because I know their the catalog pretty well, I realize there's a at least a handful of hits they didn't play. Yeah, that they couldn't get to because there's not enough time. I think the way it's something like 29 top 40 hits and 16 top tens and <laughs> six number ones, and there's just no way to get through all of it. So. They have a great band. They put on a great show. It was just, uh, it was really nice to do another show with them. And of course, they call you by your nickname, Maneater. Which I just discovered <laughs> through you somehow. But yeah, I guess I am Mootloo the Maneater. <laughs> <laughs> now the, the real question is, and this is not insulting 
to Hall and Oates, given we've what we've discovered in the past. The real question is, Molly, have you ever heard of Hall and Oates? I love Hall and Oates, actually. Yeah. Yes. Awesome. Okay. All right. Yes. There you go. Well, that's I love good. it. Now, I, I will say this. I will say this now, because yes. there's a lot of bands that you brought up that Molly, you haven't known, because there's a you know generational gap. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you know Hall and Oates, right? Yes. Now, what I think has happened with Hall and Oates, because I th- I witnessed it firsthand. I sort of toured with them on a pretty consistent basis throughout this resurgence that they had. I think we had talked about this spike on an earlier episode. They're one of those groups that had this incredible resurgence in recent years, and they've connected to a younger audience because I started seeing it at the shows. Well, I've seen them do like, they will play with indie bands, I guess. Yeah. They will do those sorts of like festival type shows that mix them with current artists in a way that most, what's the word I'm looking for? Most heritage acts or whatever, or greatest hits acts have not evolved in that way. Even that festival that you played, the the one in Philadelphia was all current artists, really. It, yeah. it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like a, an old timer show or something. And that's a testament to the fact that Daryl and John... They just still, they love collaborating with people. They still love playing shows. They love writing. And they love discovering new artists. And that was the real push behind Daryl's television show, which I think is a big part of this resurgence and connecting to a younger audience because he's brought a lot of these indie bands on there. And then you said right after the show I played with them, I think just yesterday they played another one of these big festivals that has like indie bands on it, you know, and they headlined. So, what a uh, slap in the face to Limp Bizkit and Rage Against the Machine and me for Molly 100% being all in on Hall & Oates. Uh, Molly, you are awesome. I love that. I, forget about, I mean, hey, I like Limp Bizkit and all that, but Hall & Oates is where it's at. You know? awesome. Mo- Molly has slid to Team Mutlu if she is on Yes, yes. So the the other thing was, <laughs> I, did you see any of the Taylor Hawkins? Uh, I should have asked if you had before I even. I didn't. It up. I didn't. Oh, okay. But I I sort of saw some snippets about it. Is there a? I'm sure there's an archive of it because I, yeah. I plan on watching it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was I I I watched parts of it. You know, so the the Foo Fighters are doing these two giant benefit tribute shows to Taylor Hawkins, their drummer who uh, who died last month. One of them at Wembley Stadium, and one of them in Los Angeles. True story. For the second time in my life, this happened. I actually had two seats on the website for the the LA show in my basket. They were like three hundred seventy five dollars each, and they were behind the stage. And I was like. Nah, I don't want to go if I'm behind the stage. And I let them go. And I should have just fucking gone because the I would rather be behind the stage at that show than not at that show. The Wembley Stadium show looked amazing. One of the, the standout clips that has, made, you know, a huge list of people who are performing at it. Brian Johnson from ACDC did a couple of songs. Dave Grohl's daughter sung a couple of songs. And the, the clip that is circulating this morning is Taylor Hawkins, 16-year-old son playing drums on My Hero, which is just I did like, see a short clip of that, which yeah, was I, amazing on, I mean, on Twitter. Just like, I don't know, the, the, from the an emotional perspective, of course, the kid is a fucking great drummer, of course, but the, from an emotional perspective, just the seeing all of that is just uh, is just wild. And I'm, I'm glad they're doing that show and I'm glad they're doing the L.A. one. And yeah, it's certainly the, the it is worth watching. You know, it's the a cool, a cool. They ended it with a Foo Fighters set, but it's a, a cool show. Definitely a cool show and worth watching. 
for for next time. Well, I'm sure we'll uh, I'll I'll send. What is it? A, do you know where the? I'm sure it's in any number of places, but where is the archive for that? Uh, if uh, it's a website called Google. And if you Google it, um, but maybe then... you can just fast track my discovery. <laughs> I, 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 I will. I will. You I jerk. Will, I will. There's a, there's a, there you Googled me. Of... You did the Google thing on me. You did I the know... go Google yeah. it, dude. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wait, wait, wait. And then one more story before we get going. But the, uh, you know, I'll hold the, I'll hold the Kokomo story for in between albums. Actually, I will hold that. I will wait, hold Kokomo? That. Kokomo? Yeah, I have a Kokomo story, but okay. that, that's, I'll, I'll hold that for in between albums. The place that I know that it was on was Paramount Plus because I have that app so I could watch uh, Beavis and Oh, Pot. there you I, go. That's I, all you had to there say. You yeah, yeah, I know. I didn't have to be an asshole. <laughs> didn't have to be an asshole. So, well, uh, why don't we, we started with listener album, I think, last time. So we can start with, uh, didn't we? Didn't we? I don't know. I I think we I did, think so. yeah. Yeah, so, so. We'll, we'll start with Metallica. You know, Metallica is not my favorite band. It is like one of them, but it is the answer I give most when people ask what my favorite band is because you you don't have to explain it after you answer it. If I say silver chair or something, then I have to go through like the whole rigmarole <laughs> about like what that is and or Butch Walker, who's that? Like I don't feel like having that conversation. So Metallica is the good answer because everybody knows who Metallica is, so it's easy and I can and I I do genuinely love them, but they're definitely not my favorite, but they are the answer of of my favorite band. So and Justice for All is not my favorite Metallica album. It is my second, but I think it is a more interesting album to talk about than the Black Album, especially because of the point in their career, the music itself, it's sort of like an inflection point for them. And I, I, th I thought it was more interesting to discuss. It is like, I was trying to, I was listening to the album again yesterday and I was almost, it is such a cold, like concrete-like, sharp, um, uh, precise, angry record. Like it is, it is not without feeling, but the feeling is cold and, and, angry the entire time and it's not like i know people who aren't metal people think metal music is angry all the time but it isn't and certainly not in this particular way it's certainly the most socially relevant album in terms of like the lyrics too they're not a band who has not done that you know but this album almost hold the whole way through from a topic perspective is definitely socially uh, aware and so so metallica without doing the whole thing they would be classified as thrash at least when they started they began in los angeles though they are a bay area band and that's where they would end up making their home lars was in la and put out a classified ad looking lars so the the lineup currently is lars ulrich on drums james hetfield on rhythm guitar and vocals robert trujillo on bass and Kirk Hammett on guitar, but that was not the original lineup. The original lineup started with Lars, Lars and James, who are pretty much the core. So Lars puts out this uh, classified ad looking for somebody, finds James. Lars is friendly at the time with the owner of Metal Blade Records, who are putting out a, a compilation called Metal Massacre. And Lars asks if his new band, after jamming with James for a bit, could be on that compilation. And they say, yes. So they put a song on that called Hit the Lights, which ended up on Kill 'Em All, ends up on that compilation. Most of that 
was recorded just with James and Lars. While they're doing this, they recruit two more people to the band. Dave Mustaine, who would later become Megadeth. famous for being Megadeth, being the, the, the heart and soul and core of Megadeth. And Ron McGovney was the bass player. And this band almost immediately became sort of like a live force real popular in the like the LA metal scene and really really a band that that like began their underground following at this point they recorded a demo called power metal which before thrash i suppose so thrash metal is basically defined as four bands there are more bands but like the core of it comes from slayer metallica megadeth and anthrax all great bands anthrax i would love to talk about at some point even a megadeth record would be cool so they they record a demo and then they go to record they're building up so much steam oh and before this by the way they kick ron mcgovney out of the band they saw cliff burton play who was the drummer on the first album. They saw Cliff Burton playing in a different band at the Whiskey on Sunset in LA. They asked Cliff Burton to join the band and they kick out Ron McGovney. I have and, one quick question yeah. there. Uh, maybe yeah. you're gonna get to this, but I love Primus. Yes. Isn't there a story that- <laughs> So that <laughs> is in between. Play. Yes, so we'll get to that. We'll okay. get to the okay. Let's Play Pool There's part. a Let's Play Pool story in there. Yes, that was not here. That's not. That doesn't happen yet. And then before they recorded their first album, which ended up being Kill 'Em All, it was originally titled Metal Up Your Ass, but it was called Kill 'Em All eventually when it was Jeez. yeah, when it was released, is they kick out Dave Mustaine. Uh, because Dave Mustaine was a you know, I I guess who knows really why they kick him out, but a pretty intense drinker, as the whole band was, but I get the sense he was a real asshole when he was a drinker as well they kick him out on the same day replace him with kirk hammett so they even had a plan this could be its own podcast the dave mustaine versus metallica things that would come up over the years things that dave mustaine claims that he wrote you know even like regularly trashes kirk hammett calls him an okay guitar player um like just just obliterates to this him. day has, is that still a beef yes I mean, has not gotten wow. over it yeah yeah that's yeah. 40 plus years says that he got over it but did not actually did not actually get over it so they go to re record their first album and metal blade could not afford to to pay for the production of it so this guy named johnny z who is a concert promoter who ends up paying for the production of the album and putting them putting this album on his own label megaforce now i mentioned it was called metal up your ass they had a problem in that record source didn't want to carry it it's called metal up your ass so they changed it to kill them all they were a they grinded like live played a lot of shows and they recorded their second album which is called ride the lightning and while they were touring they got discovered, as it were, by an A&R guy at Electra and a guy named Cliff Bernstein, who runs Q Prime Management. Q Prime is an enormous management company at this point. Q Prime has Red Hot Chili Peppers. They have Metallica. They have uh, Silverson Pickups. Just a really big sort of legendary management uh, company. And they take them on, and they get signed to Electra. They then record Master of Puppets with Fleming, the producer was Fleming Rasmussen, who would later produce Injustice for All. And they toured and toured and toured. And that album hit 29 on the Billboard Top 200, which is fucking crazy. Ends up selling 6 million copies, was on the Billboard Top 200 for two years 
Is this with radio? Now, were they having no radio? They have song, no radio. No radio. Six I, million copies with no radio. Yeah. So Fade to Black eventually like becomes like the, the, a lot of their early music that is played on the radio now happened after after it, you know, as right. people became fans of the band. YSP and Metal Shop was a, WISP in Philadelphia was an original supporter of Metallica. In fact, you know the guy from Amos's management, Ed Green? Do you know Ed Green? Yeah, who works I know for Red Ed, Light? yeah, yeah, So sure. me, me and Ed Green was on YSP, hosted Metal Shop, and was one of the first people to, to do that. Metal Shop, which would later become Rockers. So me and Ed Green could tell you stories about So you that. know him from your, uh, from your radio days? Basically. From my radio days, yeah, and now he works for Amos's uh, management company. Yeah, Red I guess Light. for Red Light I, or ATO, I guess he does, is it promo for ATO? Oh. Or, or maybe he yeah. works directly for, but they're, they're kind of one owned by Red Light, right? I mean, It's all interconnected, company. Red yeah, Light, yeah. ATO. So it's the it's the same give or take yeah he does record promotion for them so while they're on the tour for master of puppets they are on a tour bus and the tour bus and here's where the less claypool thing comes in the tour bus wait or was the less claypool thing after i don't know if that's after i think that might have been when jason newstead left in fact it was that's later uh that's actually after all of this so the they get into an accident the tour bus flips over like five times and cliff burton is killed in the accident james hetfield even tells a story of like getting out of the bus and seeing his legs out from under the bus Ooh. um which is obviously Horrible. like crushing they decide to continue on they have tryouts. They add Jason Newstead to the band. And Newstead was in a band called Flotsam and Jetsam, another thrash band. Cool band, actually. A very cool cover of uh, Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting, the uh, Elton John song they cover, Flotsam and Jetsam cover. Is really? It, yeah. The, an Elton song? Yes. Wow, I wouldn't have yeah. expected that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you should check it out. It's a good tune. Anyway, so they signed Jason Newstead, and they go back on tour. They actually put out an EP that Newstead was on called The Garage Days, which was a bunch of covers. It was a, a, a rare piece of vinyl and cassette for a while, Garage Days, which they would later do. It was called the 598 EP, and they would later do another uh, Garage Days years and years later where they would do more covers. But the original one, I think, was, was five songs, and that was the first thing that Jason Newstead was on. And then they go to record and justice for all. As I mentioned, it is a, an angry, pointed record. It is also, while their technical proficiency was obvious in the early records, this is almost a showcase for it. Just the amount of like sort of uh, time changes, time signature changes within the songs, things that are not normal, you know, you can just hear it's different and, and weirder f from a musical sense, and even the production of it is so tight and crisp, I guess is the word, and bigger, I would think, than their, their other records. The, on, the one production note that became famous about this album is that there's essentially no bass in the entire album, uh, Jason Newstead's first full-length album. You can't hear the, the bass in it at all. I wasn't sure if it was just so compressed or just dialed down in the mix. It's, it's tough to say because there's such dense guitar tracks right. in it, you know? So they have given a bunch of reasons, none of which that they've said publicly was like Jason Newstead hazing. I read a lot of interviews about it. This was the, the quote that seemed to maybe encapsulate all of it. This is from 
uh, James Hetfield. Justice was the James and Lars show from beginning to end, but it wasn't fuck this guy, let's turn his bass down. It was more like we're mixing, so let's pat ourselves on the back and turn the rhythms and drums up. But we basically kept turning everything else up until the bass disappeared. And then Fleming Rasmussen said, it's on them, that's for sure. It was Lars and James who said to turn the bass down. I know that for a fact because I asked them. So, so in the the mixing of the record, it's they there, but it's not. But it's just it's mixed out basically. Yeah. So the, and a couple of you know one of the other excuses was that what Newstead was doing, you know, this was uh, Newstead talked about this being a really different experience for him in terms of how to record the album as they did their parts separately. And what he did was mirror a lot of Hetfield's parts because they weren't, they weren't playing, I get together and Hetfield or Newstead was a big fan of Metallica. So I, I think he was deferential. And I think what that ended up doing was muddying the, the guitar versus the bass. Like that is the, the clean, I guess the giving Hetfield an out excuse out of it, I guess, is that what he was doing was doubling it. Rasmussen said that the bass lines were brilliant. Uh, Jason Newstead is a good bass player. He would later, we won't, we won't talk about it, but he would later leave Metallica after he wanted to do a side project. Metallica said no, so he left. And that is when Robert Trujillo, who was great, joined the band, Robert Trujillo, who was in Suicidal Tendencies. And that is when, what's his name from Primus, a Les Claypool audition for the band, which is in some kind of monster, the documentary that uh, is about St. Anger, that first album that Trujillo was in. They have some of the, they have the, the tryouts and they have the Les Claypool one in there. Now, I haven't seen that, but as the story goes, maybe this is incorrect, didn't he try to lead them through an Isley Brothers song? Isn't that... Oh, I don't and, remember. And it's kind of like, possible. Yeah. It could be an urban, like, urban myth, but he... <laughs> My understanding was he led them through a song that like made no sense for them to play. Like he was almost trolling them, maybe. I don't know. It wouldn't surprise maybe. me if Les Claypool did that. And they yeah. were kind of like, get out of here. Like, yeah, yeah. What are you doing, Les Claypool? <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. They that's a, a great documentary for for anyone who is interested in music, some kind of monster. It shows the I guess the 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 strains that can encounter a band that has been together as long as Metallica has. And it you know, it's interesting. It doesn't paint anyone in a good light, but it is it is re remarkably honest. Like nobody comes out of James, Lars, nobody, Trujillo comes out of that out, the documentary looking great, but nobody aside from him comes out of that documentary looking like somebody that you like more. But it, it was, I, I commend them for being honest, you know, and they, they've gone through a lot, you know, from the, uh, from being called sellouts in the, the load era to the Napster thing that happened when, you know, they were essentially fighting for artist rights and, and became the negative face of that, I guess, as they went uh, after consumers. But okay, to this album, James Hetfield is, is like one of the best guitar players of all time. The fact that he plays the rhythm parts in this band and also sings is fucking crazy. Like, it's crazy to think that somebody is doing more, something other than just playing rhythm. And I think, like, this is an outstanding album from him, for him, from a, a rhythm standpoint. The, the album is nine songs and 65 minutes long, <laughs> which is fucking uh, insane, right? But it just zips by, doesn't it? I, I didn't find, it doesn't feel like it, it drags on because it's just so engaging at every turn. 
Yeah, I, I actually have liked this album more and more as like as time has gone on. And I agree with you like that, that I think the songs, the more you listen to them and the more you like, like I, th- I used to think that this album was boring and I don't think it's boring anymore. Like, I think it's it's pretty great. Like, I, I love I, this is an album that I listen to pretty regularly. The there is a an instrumental track on the album to live is to die, which is their tribute to Cliff Burton which has a bunch of things that Cliff Burton wrote. think this was the album that launched their career commercially as well too as crazy as that sounds i'll just mention a couple of songs and we'll talk about the album but one was the song that basically took them from a underground success to a commercial success Because MTV attacked, like MTV played that video, and that video became enormous. Like, was number one on Dial MTV. They played it all the time. It was a black and white performance video where they were in a like a room with clips from the movie Johnny Got His Gun in there, and the the song is about a soldier who gets his limbs blown off, and it does not have the ability to communicate, and basically begging for his you know, life to end and what it's like to be in that situation. Again, heavy. a heavy. very, a very heavy song. Every lyrical theme in this record is, is incredibly dark. heavy. Yeah. Yes. And, and they, they actually bought, they didn't have the rights to use the movie. So they bought the rights to the movie. So they owned the movie um, afterwards. So they could continue to show that video. There is a different version of the video that doesn't have those clips in there. And you mentioned like the themes and we've talked about that. The first song of the album, Blackened. Blackened in the air, about like we're talking about 1988 and basically and a song about the environment in 1988 which is basically what blackened is about death of mother earth never a rebirth evolutions and never never will it mend never you know like that is that's not something that you felt felt like was like a, a metal talking point at the time was uh, even now i wouldn't is it really uh, there are a lot of bands that that speak on you know the environment environmental protections but i i, I can't think of a metal many metal that groups do. that necessarily take that message and and roll with it no you know what's funny is like i i actually think like spousal abuse and domestic abuse is a is something that metal covered before a lot of other bands did but you're right like when we're talking about the list of socially conscious things that they did i don't think that that the environment was something that you heard about a lot and then I uh, talked about one, and then the other one, I love Harvester of Sorrow. My life. 
think I love it the most because it has such a groove to it that I don't, that I think is, if, if this album is missing anything, it is like groove. I, I think it, the, the drumming and the rhythm is very impressive, but there's not a lot of groove to the record, but this song does. Now, this is another one where the lyrics don't totally, isn't totally clear what the song is about, though it could be about addiction, it could be about abuse, it also could be about abortion, which is another thing, you know, there's a, a lyric toward the end of it that indicates that, and some people think it's about that, but that's, a, I think, Harvester of Sorrow, which I think is only five and a half minutes long, just carries a, a, a groove that the rest of the album doesn't. But I, I think this, this album has grown on me over time. And I still am not ready to say that's better than the Black Album, though a lot of people do say that, but it, it certainly has grown on me. Yeah, I mean, it's an incredible record. Now, this this jogged something from my memory bank. I, I feel like this has happened mm. with a few albums we've discussed. It happened with Def Leppard. Okay. And, you know, I lived in Turkey for a year when I was a kid. Yes. And my best friend, Halil, when I lived there, I think I mentioned him before, too. He lived on the first floor of my building. Yep. He was a big music fan. He's a little bit older than me, mm-hmm. and he would always introduce me to these great bands, especially the more like hard rock bands. And I lived in Turkey in 88. I was a kid, and I think that's when this record came out, correct? It's 88. Yeah, 88. Yep. Yeah, and I remember he, I remember I just had this vision of like him having the cassette and, and us listening to this. And it was my first introduction to this band, because eventually they were on MTV all the time. Yep. But... I was just blown away by it then. When you listen to these songs, there's almost a classical level of composition happening. When you mm-hmm. think about the, the composition, the arrangements, the the intricacy of what they play. You were talking about James Hetfield. A lot of it is in what he plays. The guitar yes. solos are incredible. They're meticulous. Yep. But a lot of it is in the core patterns that he plays. And then you couple that with this thunderous voice that he has. I mean, the guy is just a, a musical powerhouse in, yeah. in every way. But a lot of the songs operate on their own as sort of mini-suites. There'll be different sections. Yep. You talk about the different time changes. The title track yeah. was one that I really... I mean, that's that's a monster of a song. And it's again, almost 10 minutes long. It's almost 10, 10 minutes. Yeah. 10 minutes long. It just takes you on a journey. And it, like like Black and it has a social commentary in it. This one kind of pushing more, as far as I understood it, against like power structures and exploitation. And I, I like that there's a message in this music. I, I'm not sure if the Black album had more tightly constructed songs, mm-hmm. but this album feels, at least in, in my recollection, this feels more like they went full into the social commentary and they yeah. didn't necessarily tether themselves to tightly constructed songs. If they wanted to do a 10 minute song, they did it. And I think that's actually what makes me like it more than the black album, because it's not, here's the difficult thing. It's if you do write those kind of songs that have many different sections, they're like song suites and there's a lot happening musically. It can then be tough to create something that's memorable, but mm-hmm. there are so many memorable melodies yeah, vocally, guitar-wise on this. So it doesn't lose you in that way. And then you were talking about the production. 
that's something that I just kept marveling at. I listened on the stereo. I listened on headphones. I listened on my computer just to try to dissect what was happening production-wise because it's hard to think of. There are very few records that are, are as well recorded, I think, as this one is. Even with the bass being basically crushed out of it, <laughs> you know, it's and and it's interesting because what what happens is the drums are much more present in the mix mm-hmm. than you hear on most of these kind of heavier records. A lot, a lot of heavier records, it's more the guitar that yeah that is up front in the mix, and the drums are there. They might have that intensity, but you you know Lars is playing. You hear those drums in a very crystal clear sort of context where you don't normally hear drums like that where you can hear everything he's playing. Normally, it's a little more buried in the mix, and I guess that's a byproduct of them taking the bass out of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I think also what happens is, even though there's a lot happening musically, and even though they took the bass out of it, you it doesn't feel like overproduced. You know, it doesn't feel it doesn't feel it polished at all. It, no, it's still, that, there's a rawness to it still. Yeah, and that that is the thing that people complain about with the Black Album because the Black Album is sort of the hysteria of the of the Metallica catalog in that the songs are are look that 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 album gets shit on for not being heavy enough. That is a, a very heavy album if you go and you listen to it, the Black Album, but it is glossier yeah. and the songs are more obvious and it is not sort of as like when comparing the two albums, sometimes I, I would listen to Justice and I would be like, oh my God, like the, the songs are tedious. Like I used to think they were tedious, but I think it's only that way when you compare it to the Black Album. And I think they're doing two, they're just doing two completely different things. And it's produced well in two completely different ways, right? Like the Black Album is is like thick and big and like glossy whereas this album is produced very well but it's almost like harsher in a way and cleaner than the black album is if that makes any sense yeah i think the on the black album the production is denser it's yes, it's there's dense. yeah there are yeah. more layers to the production and from a songwriting standpoint there's there i don't want to say it's pop songwriting but right. it's closer to that mm-hmm. that's not what this is this veers I mean, I don't. I maybe those who are classical purists would say, "What are you talking about?" But there is a, a almost a sense of these are like classical level compositions. What was the group? The 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 string quartet. Is it Apocalyptica? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That covers their songs. It makes perfect sense because yeah. you hear a, a four piece string quartet playing this music, and it's it's written that way. It's written for that context almost. If you just take it out of a, a rock band setting. Yeah, I mean there are there are a lot of ties from classical music to metal, like of this of this um, uh, of this ilk, you know. Um, and there are some that lean into it more, you know, like Dream Theater or Queensrÿche sort of lean into those references a little more than Metallica does, at least publicly. By the way, Apocalyptica, if you've never seen them, they're all ch- you said string. Qu- they're all cellos. They just play cellos. Everything is a cello, right? No. Yeah. No violin, yeah. viola, nothing. No, only wow. cellos. And they they put out a pretty fun album in like 09, which had guest vocalists on it of like original compositions. Corey Taylor from Slipknot sang on a song. Uh, Adam from Three Days Grace sang on a song. It's really cool. But I've seen them play and they play the cellos like guitars almost. Like they <laughs> spin them and flip them and it's fucking, it's really cool. I mean, they're, they are very, very, very cool. They're worth seeing if you ever get the chance. Molly, were, I assume you were familiar with the name Metallica before. Yes, but I had uh, never listened to them actually. So this was also a new one. 
for me. <laughs> and what are your thoughts? I thought I was interested in the the political context of when they were recording this. I don't I didn't look yeah. it up, but just naming your album and justice for all and then talking about war and pain and suffering throughout it. The lyrics mm -hmm. were really, really cool. But I, yeah, I was just curious as to what was going on in the world when they were recording this, because it was definitely fueled by anger towards the government. Yeah, and that you know the cover is you know the the justice statue the the what is it what is that called the the woman the justice is blind statue or whatever but she's holding like in the the one in in the the scales that she's holding is like money and that's the you know is sort of like it, it's funny like when you look in the past and you think about our problems today like you. you it seems like nothing has changed and that like you look at these and when we're talking about ice cube when we're talking about the predator you know everything seemed the same like you wonder what's worse now and what isn't and it's so hard to tell when you go back and you listen to this and you're like wow it sounds like like in 1987 they were mad at the same shit that we're mad at today you know it, it, it is interesting you know yeah and if you go back 50 years you know there wasn't metal and rock and right. roll back then yeah. was going on then a lot of the same i think people get so caught in this 24 7 news cycle that we're just immersed in right now yeah that that they it's hard to get the bird's eye view yes you know and then yeah, yeah. music is a great way to understand to see that bird's eye view you're talking yeah. about ice cube this record that's yep. cool that 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 side of it resonated with you molly because it's like a lot of those themes we're still dealing with now, we're just processing them differently. I think more people are talking about them uh, maybe than, than they were back then because, again, because of social media, because we're constantly inundated with, with news. And, but, and, and because, by the way, it's become a way to make money. Well, right. You know, like these things have become a way to profit in a way that they have not become. Like the divisiveness and those arguments are now a profit path for some people, which I think maybe magnifies it. No, definitely magnifies it more, you know? Yeah, there's a profit incentive to keep those conflicts going. Right. Which is scary. Right. Yeah. Well, cool. I'm glad we talked about this record. On to uh, onto a band that I should have always liked because everyone <laughs> references them and they are a cool band to like, but I honestly had never listened more than a song or two. I'm going to be honest. We're 40 minutes in, so I'm going to be honest that I've like never really paid attention to Fugazi other than the fact that I knew they're supposed to be influential and, and great. But that Well, was I'm it. right there with you. It's the same yeah. for me because I definitely heard a song or two before but never did a deep dive. I think what I knew about them, I think what people who don't necessarily know their music still probably know about them is their unique approach to the music business. Mm -hmm. yep. They are the quintessential DIY band. They lived that. They, they followed that. They never broke from that. Yeah, and and I think part of the the diehard cult following to this day behind them is based around that as well as the music. Just it was cool to get do a deep dive. It, I'll be honest, it was a little challenging at moments to 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 catch on to this. But the more time I spent with this record, the more I liked it.
give you a little background on them. They were formed in D.C. in 1986. All the members had a significant history in the D.C. punk scene going back years. So this was a band composed of members who, uh, you know, who had already had a, a presence in that scene. The band members were Ian McKay on vocals and guitar, Joe Lolly on bass, guitar, and vocals, Brendan Canty on drums, and Guy, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Pizziato? Picciato? P-I-C-C-I-O. How would you? Pizziato? Pizziato. Ah, Pizziato. Hey, hey. So, so it's originally, uh, see, what was the band we talked about? And I almost fell out because you were doing your Italian impersonation. Was it Italian or was it? They were an Italian band and you really just went for it. uh, Yeah, I can't can't remember. As as we we morph into our borderline uh what's the word i'm like race is the wrong word but like but like you know as as i uh, make fun of different uh, nationalities by mocking their their <laughs> cartoonish accents well this was an <laughs> italian band they were kind of it was like a side project of a, we, we talked about them not that long ago hmm. anyway we got totally derailed because you were doing oh i do i do this. it was the uh the i i it's not called the ghost but something like that it I was will, a cool I, record actually it was yeah. kind of like sp- psychedelic kind of space yeah as, as you're talking I'll, I'll find it yeah I'll so anyway i'm not gonna allow us to, to be woods, derailed. i think was the name of the album if i'm remembering right, correctly. right. But, exactly yeah. i'm not gonna allow us to be derailed here yeah but yeah, the, yeah. it was originally a trio with ian mckay joe lolly and brendan canty and then guy pizziato joined pizziato. after after <laughs> Don't do it, man. After a while, uh, after a while, joined in, and that was the core lineup pretty much all the way to the end of their run, which isn't definitive. They've just been on an extended hiatus since two thousand three. Okay. Now, Ian McKay, yeah, they they they've all been active in other projects, but for all intents and purposes, they wrapped up almost twenty years ago. But it's not. It's confusing. They they're up. not they're not considered to be broken up as a band, so there's pro- probably an opportunity for a reunion at some point. Okay. Um, but see, they're not the kind of band that wants to cash in on anything, so it's even more confusing, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, Ian McKay, now this is something I wanted to ask you about because there's a connection to the emo genre that you would know much better than me. Ian McKay had previously been in a band called Embrace, and Guy Pizziato and Brendan Canty had previously been members of Rites of Spring. Yes. Which these are two bands that are, if I'm not mistaken, are considered to have laid the groundwork for emo. Are those groups you're familiar with? Yeah. So those are the bands that happened in emo that led to like the post hardcore path of emo. Like, you know, like emo became Dashboard Confessional and Fall Out Boy and all, all those things that we know is like popular. But I would say before that, when you look at the path of like Sunny Day Real Estate, who we talked about, or even band like Thursday, they were more influenced by the post hardcore version of, you know, and, and that is those two bands are two bands where where that started. So, yes, that is the it is the the the, the beginnings of emo, though, if you listen to what became popular as emo you may not see the ties and i don't hear that at all in fugazi so they went in a different direction it sounds oh yeah it's interesting i do but maybe it's because i'm more familiar with that end of emo than than you are it was funny because i heard things in there it actually reminded me of idols too like that was a band that was obviously directly influenced by this band you know remember we did that yeah that was fairly recently Yeah, yeah that was a cool record too yeah well, so so they come together, but again, they all have this considerable history in the DC mm-hmm. scene, and 
I guess it would be called post-punk, hardcore, beginnings mm-hmm. of emo, all kind of in that area. So they honed their live act for a few years, and then they released a self-titled debut, debut in 1988 in EP. That song, that album featured a song called Suggestion, which I think was one of the few songs I'd previously heard of theirs, which is still to this day one of their most popular songs. Then the following year, they released a Margin Walker EP in 89, and then eventually that same year they packaged the two EPs as one album, 13 songs. So in a sense, that's their first album, but their true debut album was Repeater, which dropped in 1990. And by this time, they'd been working in the studio. They'd been really honing their chops as a live band. They'd really come into their own as a studio unit. And this album, now I'm not really familiar with it, but it's widely considered to be a, a classic of post-hardcore and alternative rock, comes at an t- interesting moment, 1990, when I think the the paradigm was shifting in music. You know, it's right at that sweet spot between the end of hair metal and where I think some of the punk rock influence was starting to move towards mm-hmm. the mainstream but it's kind of right before nirvana yep so this is a band that you know i've heard like eddie vetter talk about this band and some of those other groups reference them steady diet of nothing drops in 1991 and then this album drops in 1993 so they they were going at a pretty steady clip for a while there now this album actually hit number 153 on billboard which isn't high up the chart but for a band that's so that was so underground yeah, yeah. you know it's considerable and by the way so, and in, in it, at this time, hitting that a billboard probably means they sold like fucking hundred thousand copies. In yeah, the first week easy, or something. easy. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. You were selling a lot of records if you were making it there. And for a band that yeah. was DIY, you know, uh, Discord Records was owned by Ian McKay, so they had their own label effectively, mm-hmm. and they were doing it independently. And the label offers started coming in, and they categorically rejected every offer, which I think was right in line with. The vision they had for their career as 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 musicians. The years that followed, they released three more albums: Red Medicine in '95, End Hits in '98, and The Argument in '01. And gradually, their tours and releases became more and more sporadic. And again, since 2003, they're on somewhat of an indefinite hiatus, but they're not broken up. So I imagine there could be a, a Fugazi reunion at some point. Maybe there has been on some level. I you know I apologize yeah, I know. if I'm not aware, but I don't think there's been a big one. But the members have been active. Looking at this band, they have the quintessential DIY approach, and I think they proved to be immensely influential in sort of preserving and furthering that sort of punk rock ethos, you know, because this isn't early days of punk. This is like, you know, 90s, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, in a, in a time when music was becoming, some of that, even that sound was becoming more commercial. Now, there's an English music journalist named Everett True, who I think has a quote that really gets right to the heart of the approach that Fugazi took to their career. He said that Ian McKay and Fugazi, I'm quoting him, had a mindset that believed that any involvement with the system was corrupting and you should create completely alternative structures outside of it. And, (laughs) you know, those seemed like just, okay, I get it, DIY. But no, these guys committed to that uh, fully, even to the point of, now we can go to a few different aspects of that, the ticket sales from early on, they determined that they wanted to keep their tickets at $5 and make the shows as cheap as possible. Their perception of it was that escalating ticket prices was a form of ticket uh, price gouging for mm. concerts and that it was unfair to the fans and to the listeners. You hear, that, they, Bruce? You hear that, Bruce? Yeah. <laughs> you know, in the back of my mind, I oh, thought... There's you, nothing I can do. Oh, it's just the system. 
It all comes back to the boss in the end. Swimming in his pool of fucking money. <laughs> oh, I just wish there was something I could do. Now, what happens if someday we, we get Springsteen on the podcast? On a grill of money. I'm sorry. Go ahead. What was that? <laughs> I was going to let you keep going, but what happens if someday the boss... Hey man, anything's possible. What if he ends up on the podcast with us? I would, I would be less of a dick, but I would certainly ask him about those things. About I these things, that, and would yeah, you, I and reference Fugazi. Hey, are you familiar with Fugazi, Bruce? Are you like familiar with like Fugazi? That? That, 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 that they are everything that you say that you are. Um, oh. If you would ever, if you would. <laughs> I think we might be banished from the music industry if you do that. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> hey, man, hard-hitting questions, you know. You know, deserves. He deserves to be asked those things, you know. <laughs> well, it these guys. time from counting his money to answer them. Right. Anyway. Did you say grilling the money? Did you make some money? Well, no. He was using the money to grill his food. So ah, he has uh. a grill, and instead of charcoal or gas, he just lights money on fire and grills it that way. See, That's I had weird. a weird image of like stacks of dollar bills being grilled. No, why would he like, do that? He's that just would... lighting the money on fire to cook his food. Right, yeah. I got it. Makes right, sense. Right, right. Makes sense. Yep. Makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. So even as they went on, as they became a bigger man, they still generally kept their ticket prices to ten or fifteen dollars. And here's the thing. Here's the kicker: they still managed to be profitable because. Mm. They kept their overhead costs low, and what they would do mm. is if they had certain markets where they did really well, they would do these multi-night runs and pack it out. Ooh, and now here's wow. the other dimension of this that made them successful. <laughs> they had a willingness, even a desire, to play alternative venues. As much as possible, they didn't want to play uh -huh. traditional rock clubs. Huh. So they wanted to break out of uh, that traditional kind of mold of playing. And hence, I think they, the part of the dedication of their audience was that they were a unique experience. Their approach was unique. So yeah, I, th I think the uh, the album itself is is pretty unique as well. You know, like yeah, it is, yeah, it's an interesting album. Yeah, but Public Witness program that was kind of the first track that really caught me. I guess, I guess the yeah. second track. love that staccato attack of the guitar. I feel like there's elements that you hear on this record that I've heard on some other more contemporary bands we've listened to. That there's definitely an influence there. There's almost like a call and response between the vocal and the guitar. And it's the perfect example of sometimes you don't need a long set of lyrics. It's basically yeah. one verse, you know, and two minutes right in the wheelhouse of what I think punk rock is supposed to be. It's just two minutes and you get it all in. I thought the Public Witness program was the most like the best example of of like i think it's the best song on the album it's then not the most interesting song on the album but it's the best song on the album i also think like it does a great job which they do in other times of like being atmospheric by still but still having punk music which is not easy you know which was actually something else i noticed in the idols album but i i thought like there was a an atmosphere and like a, you could almost see the sounds on this album which i i don't find in a ton of punk music yeah, I think that's what made it a compelling listen, is that it, sometimes records that are within this sound will kind of stay in, a, in one place, and they don't do that. There's a real dynamic arc to their arrangements, and throughout the record, returning the screw...
is a song that comes early on, kind of pivots to a more understated, sparse kind of sound, at least in the first half. Mm -hmm. And then I think my favorite moment in the record, there's two songs that kind of came back to back, is 23 Beats to Huff. Those, uh, the, that and the song after, right? Of course, yeah. great yeah, minds yeah, yeah. think alike. Yeah. You know, but 23 beats off, uh, the last three and a half minutes is basically just distortion feedback. It's like a sound collage. Mm-hmm. And then it builds and builds and kind of gives way to sweet and low. some of the experimental rock bands that are out there who primarily play instrumental music. Uh, also kind of another branch of the indie world. But yeah, it's not it's not a predictable listen. It doesn't stay in one place. They're skilled musically and they it's an adventurous listen. I think if you commit to it though, there's a there's a lot to like about it. I thought 23 Beats Off reminded me of like, here's another band who's probably influenced by them is Titus Andronicus, who we did. Right. Uh, Early we did on, it. we did that record. Yeah, did, did, did one of those records. And I, I thought like, you know, a punk band doing a long song that sort of drifts off and is is like, uh, is atmospheric in that way is, is a... Jam punk. Yeah, yeah. It's a, <laughs> a really cool song. And those two together, and it's just like the the fact that they are a band that do, does two songs like that, but also has a a band like Public Witness Program or Great Cop or whatever that are more straightforward punk songs on the same album as that, I think is is really cool. They're definitely like not a band that I would be uh, spend a ton of time listening to, you know. But I th- I think it's interesting. I I'm more curious about the other records and to see where this album fits in in terms of sonically like if if it's all like this or if it's this is one unto itself you know yeah I think now since I'm not familiar with the other records I can't say definitively but I there does seem to be an approach they took where they wanted to change things or evolve with each listen in other words they're also a band that I think probably benefited from the fact that you know, their their audience was willing to go along with them on whatever musical journey. I think that's what happens with bands like this who commit to that DIY kind of aesthetic. If you're mm-hmm. not tethered to, like, radio hits, then you're not beholden to them. And right. I think there are certain groups that can... It's easier for them to take chances, do something like, like that segment of the record, which is kind of out of the wheelhouse of this kind of music. You know, six and a half minute stretched out song, then you get this instrumental track. That's smack dab in the middle of the album, so... I think they had a certain creative freedom that maybe certain other groups don't have for any number of reasons. Yeah, for sure. And a freedom to charge low uh, costs for their concert tickets. Yes. Freedom. As in our capitalist society, you can charge whatever you want, even a now, ton of Now, can they money. do that if they come back now? 
That's the question. Therein lies the rub. I bet they could. Uh, Molly, you're you're Fugazi. Were you aware at all? No, I was not. No. I I had the same songs. I had 23 Beats Off and Returning the Screw as my favorites. Nice. Um, But I liked liked the slow parts of it because I'm a big Doors fan, and it kind of reminded me of like how Jim Morrison used to just like glide over the softer melodic Mm -hmm. rock, and then it would like transcend into post-punk rock eventually. But I liked those little moments in the record where it was just kind of mystical and vibey. Yeah, I've never been a Doors person at oh, all. Oh, really? I love them. Doors. Really? <laughs> two, two more for our team. Uh, one more <laughs> two for more. our team. Yeah, <laughs> one more. One more for our team. You don't like the Doors? I don't. Oh, yeah. man. Yeah, sorry. Nothing of theirs? I mean, maybe you don't like oh, everything. I like Roadhouse Blues. That's Let it? My Fire. Oh. Let my... I love oh, that that's a, that's a great. You're yeah. so right, Molly. That's a great song. Thank you. <laughs> I, Happy to be on I, Team Moot. Yes. <laughs> I find them to be annoying, um, mostly. So I, I don't, I don't, part of my gut dislike for Springsteen is the things outside of the music and the fans. I don't find Doors fans to be annoying. Like you really don't even, when you and I were growing up, I think there were plenty of people who, when they got into classic rock, started getting into Zeppelin and the doors were right there. It doesn't feel like the doors have made that. There's a lot of, I think, younger people getting into classic rock now, but it doesn't feel like the doors have made the cut, or at least I don't hear them talked about very often um, as one of those bands. Maybe I'm wrong because I I don't know any young people, but uh, at least from (laughs) from what I see on the internet or even when I go to like, a when I go to Lucky Brand or whatever and see the the classic rock T-shirts they're selling, I don't usually see Doors. So more often than not, I'll see Jim Morrison. I feel like he's iconic in a way, mm-hmm. whether or not people always put it together with the Doors. But I, I mean, he, are they on radio? Uh, that's they're on yes. classic rock radio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Consistently, yeah, we, so. we played five songs or something. I mean, we we would always light my fire and uh, uh, Roadhouse Blues, and I think there's probably four or five. Door songs that are on classic rock. See, sometimes I wonder sure. if the songs you don't like are because you have a certain memory of them, hearing them over and over again, being a radio programmer. Nope. Yes. No. Nope. Not I mean, at some all. of them. Some of them. I think. I, I think I'm. I, I think we're, we're not always aware of our biases, but I am aware of that one for some bands and some songs, but not for the Doors, who I have listened to, in their entirety, and I'm just. Bored not, ha- not having it. <laughs> Though I am fascinated by their, like, coming back as the Doors with Ian Asbury from the cult, making pretend that he's Jim Morrison, not just singing like Jim Morrison, but acting just like Jim Morrison and, like, trying to look like Jim Morrison. I think that is fascinating and weird. Uh, I would love to talk about the new doors with Ian Asbury of the cult. What is that? I didn't even know that was a thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. I Uh, think, yeah, hold on. The new doors? Well, they're not called the new doors. They're just called the doors. Let me, hold on. It was Robbie Krieger and, hold on, when did it, I want to know when it happened. Hang on. Um, When did they come back? They came back. With the guy from the cult, it was right after. So the the I'm sure you saw the movie. The yeah, uh, the, yeah. which was a I'm not always a fan of music biopics, but I, I thought that was a good one. 
Have you seen that one, Molly? No, I didn't know with that the, one. With Val Kilmer, it's it's worth a, it's worth seeing if you're a Doors fan. I, I think they did a good job with that one. Yeah, I'll check it out. Um, after the recall. After the cult recorded 2001's Beyond Good and Evil album, the band broke up and singer Ian Asbury performed with Ray and Robbie Krieger in The Doors of the 21st Century. Which That's was what it later, was called? Yeah, which was later renamed Riders on the Storm. Um, uh, and then he okay. toured. Yeah, there you go. Short-lived like a tribute band. Yeah. yeah, that's what it sounds like. <laughs> All right. Um, that's it for now. We will, uh, if you'd like to suggest an album, as always, Apple Podcast Reviews or CarlAndrewRecordClub.com. Until next time, we'll see you. Stay free, my goose. Please, please, please.